From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in Chicago, Illinois, on this week's edition, episode 200, how Dow is turning plastic into a resource, an update on Walmart's Project Gigaton, why oil and gas is over a barrel, and will the private sector be held liable for climate change? We're unimpeachable this week on 350. It's December 13th, 2019, Friday the 13th. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. As I said, we're at episode 200, a bit of a landmark here. And joining me is my colleague and comrade in arms on this podcast from Midland Park, New Jersey. It's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. 200. Oh, my goodness. I know. And they Whoa. said it wouldn't last. <laughs> No, it makes sense. We started this uh, just before COP15. You may recall uh, Lauren Hepler, um, a former associate editor, and I went to COP15, and we, you know, we did Wait, a show COP from 15? there. COP15? Yeah. Oh, I'm COP sorry. COP21 in 2015. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm getting my numbers all screwed. That was the big Paris COP, and now we're at COP25, four years later, episode 200. It all sort of mm -hmm. adds up arithmetically. But yeah, it's it's. Uh, I just want to take uh, the moment and saying I love doing this with you, Heather. It's such a great pleasure and being your co-host on this and um, and having this weekly chit chat. It's um, it's it's good fun. And everywhere I go and here at this conference I'm at here in Chicago, people come up and say I love your podcast. So it's we're not just talking to ourselves, apparently. <laughs> Apparently, and I thank you, everyone out there who's listening to us right now, because yes, I have the same thing happen, and it always surprises me and pleases me <laughs> that that this, this this is doing this is doing some good. So, um, thank you for for listening, and thank you for all the great pitches that people are sending in. Yeah, we're, we're, we've been hearing a lot from uh, listeners lately, and we're, uh, we're going to give you a chance to be part of uh, two podcasts that we're doing, uh, one at the end of the year, the uh, other at the beginning of 2020, and we'll have a little uh, thing on that in a few minutes about uh, how to participate. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that's where we are. So Chicago, Illinois, I, I noticed you emphasize that. Why, why Chicago, Illinois? Um, well, I couldn't find any other Chicago's, but, uh, <laughs> but no, I'm here this week. I'm participating in uh, the first ever Global Congress on Climate Change and Sustainability Professionals. It's put on by two organizations that I've been familiar with and a little bit involved with. Uh, one is ACO, the Association of Climate Change Officers. And the other is ISSP, the International Society for Sustainability Professionals. They, both organizations are uh, aimed to, uh, to certify and elevate uh, their professions of climate change and uh, sustainability within uh, companies, government agencies, universities, and, and such, and decided that rather than have their own event, which each of them had been doing, to combine forces. And so here we are in Chicago, and I hosted... On Tuesday night, the awards dinner where uh, I inducted into the ISSP Hall of Fame, 
to, um, I guess, in your lingo, Heather, badass women. <laughs> I know you do that story every year on <laughs> badass women. It's a great story. And two of them that um, that uh, you should know about, uh, one you do know, Janine Benyus, the uh, uh, biomimicry maven who wrote that book in 1997, 1998, started the first ever bio-inspired consultancy and now working with companies like Microsoft and Kohler, Ford, Google Interface, and a bunch of others to bring this study of how nature thinks about design and materials and processes into the innovation process. So Janine was part of that. But the other was this um, uh, remarkable, amazing woman about, i embarrassed to say I wasn't truly familiar. I'd heard her name, Dr. Vandana Shiva. Uh, she's a seed activist, and although much more than that, she, she refers to her as a uh, Gandhian eco-activist and agroecologist, uh, who uh, Forbes once called uh, one of the seven most powerful women on the globe. And uh, she's been uh, fighting for 40 years. Um, genetically modified organisms uh, took on Monsanto. Somebody called her Monsanto's worst nightmare. Uh, but uh, it's not just about stopping uh, seeds. She's also uh, has an organization called Navdanya in India where she's served more than a half million men and women farmers, resulted in the conservation of, of I think she said, over 10,000 rice varieties. Her bio says 3,000, and that's what I said when I introduced her and inducted her into this uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, but she got up and corrected me and said that I think it was over 10,000 rice varieties from across India and seed banks and uh, really, really remarkable woman. So she's all about biodiversity, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and in fact, both Janine and Vandana, and this is, I, I pointed this out, and what ties them together, um, even though they're from different generations and continents, is that both are about um, understanding, respecting, and truly working with nature uh, to develop solutions and uh, for social and environmental challenges. And and um, Janine in more of a design sense, and Vandana Shiva more in the sense of of, of preserving uh, nature's bounty and and making sure that it's available and does not become corporatized and patented and available only to the wealthy. So um, yeah, two really remarkable women who deserve the recognition into this Hall of Fame with the ISSP. Uh, founded uh, 11 years ago and uh, uh, inducted people like J our friend John Elkington and Hunter Lovins and mm. Ray Anderson and Amy Lovins and Gilfriend and a bunch of others. And once in a while, they, they screw up once in a while because uh, a few years ago they inducted me. But, uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll overlook that and get get to the, <laughs> the bigger folks. But, You're too humble. I didn't even know this. I think I was like before I got like clued in or something, but uh, th wow, that's, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but enough about me. Let's go to the Week in Review. So I'll get us started, Joel, uh, with a story from our friends at the United Nations Global Compact about human health being at the center of corporate climate action. So there's a, an effort uh, underway there to really get companies thinking more holistically about how the health factors of the world around us are indicators of, of 
the environmental progress that companies are making or not making. So this essay really tackles the, the notion that companies are not thinking enough about this in all aspects of their operations. So in particular, the supply chain, right? Because that's the areas that um, we don't see every day and the strategists don't see every day. But those, those far-flung places, um, those places in India or Africa and China and South America, and, and that we rely on for components of, of the products that we consume in the United States and other developed economies, that, that we don't think enough about the sanitation of the workers there, um, what the, their access to sanitation, whether or not they have access to healthy food and so forth. So this is a challenge, essentially, um, from the UN Global Compact um, to, to really get clued in about the healthcare aspects of, of corporate sustainability and, and why it should be really just integral into the strategy. Yes, and this, this is the place where uh, there's an opportunity for sustainability professionals in, inside companies to really extend their tentacles, if you will, to uh, the uh, beyond environment uh, sustainability to what I like to call full spectrum sustainability, which includes the human aspect of this, and understand how uh, the impacts, uh, not just of climate change, but obviously air, water, food, uh, waste, toxicity, everything uh, is affecting uh, people, uh, human health, and and uh, particularly people who are, uh, well, not particularly, but in, including people who are at the ends of supply chains. The, I know there's a, in the food industry, there's a half billion, 500 million or more uh, smallholder farmers at the uh, who are un living under the poverty levels in their respective countries that are providing the food that we all eat, or the ingredients at least for the foods that we eat. Um, and their health and well-being is is critical. And we've seen companies like Unilever lean into that and and make efforts to, to cure childhood diarrhea, which is the largest uh, cause of infant mortality uh, in the developing world. To uh, to ensure th to eliminate that and ensure their well-being, there's a lot more that we can be do doing, uh, looking at health as and particularly as it connects to environment and, and climate change in particular. Yeah, so this is just a, a good reminder, and, and and also more information about the resources available from the UN Global Compact. And the UN Global Compact will be holding their North American summit uh, on site at the Green Biz Conference, Green Biz 20, in Phoenix in the first week in February. I'm really looking forward to that. I know their focus is on how we can embed the, the sustainable development goals into strategy more holistically. Again, you know, these, these are just things that we've been talking about for the for ad nauseum and, and you longer than me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's, there's no systematic way of doing it. And I think that's, that's what, what they're trying to, to help um, promote. Yeah, and moving on, we had two stories this week that looked at legal liability uh, around climate change for companies. Um, and the first one is by uh, Rebecca Burns from the Grantham Research Institute uh, on will the private sector be held liable for climate change? Well, we're already seeing that, and uh, we're seeing court cases, uh, particularly with oil and gas companies. We'll talk more about them in a minute. Uh, looking at what is their liability uh, in, in the climate crisis in terms of, you know, should they have done more? Or were they actually keeping uh, 
knowledge uh, that they had about the uh, impacts of climate change from people, from from uh, citizens around the world, and therefore are they liable for that? And I think that we're going to be seeing a lot of action in the courts, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. In fact, there's a court cases going on in the Philippines and UK and, and a number of other places looking at this question of what is the responsibility and, and therefore the liability of companies to uh, have uh, to be taking more action and uh, on climate and to have in the past have been more uh, transparent and uh, around what they knew about the potential for climate change to impact uh, well life on earth and and given the fact that they did probably didn't act um appropriately or in good good faith, um, that's going to be a matter for the courts. You know, and I would I want one of the things that really struck me about the, the first of the stories with the, this sort of just raising the issue in general is the, is the people that are bringing these suits. Right. So in the United States, we've talked a little bit about the youth um, and there's there's a number of things going on in the U.S. that put the, where the youth activists are trying to bring cases against the United States for failing to act on certain things. In Peru, uh, there's a farmer, you know, and actually not just one farmer, but more than one farmer that are, that are focusing on how the inability of, of, in this particular case, a utility is, is screwing up his ability to have a livelihood and, and what is happening to his hometown and, and, and the conditions that are changing there as a result. In Australia, we, we've seen uh, retail employees suing their employer because they didn't disclose enough. Um, they, they, they weren't careful enough about the funds that were being invested on behalf of their employees. So th- it's not just, you know, the the staunch activists. These are these are people in society that are just sick of what's going on and are taking action. And just because you're suing doesn't mean you're going to win. Uh, just this past week, ExxonMobil won a high-profile case about its accounting for the financial risks of climate change that had been taken on by New York State. It was the plaintiff. They had sued Exxon saying that it misled shareholders about the way it had estimated the cost of future climate-related regulations. And and the court said that the attorney general's office had failed to prove that ExxonMobil made any material misstatements or omissions. Uh, that was the New York State Supreme Court Justice Barry Ostranger. Uh, and um, so these aren't all going to be open and shut cases by any stretch. In fact, these are pretty complex from a legal perspective. Uh, how much did they know? What do they know and when do they know it? And what should they have done? And what, what are the implications of their not having done what maybe should have been done? Is that... Uh, is that libel or not? Um, and you know, should these uh, companies start losing these cases, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what's going to happen. It's sort of like you know when there's a uh, an opioid opioid or drug other drug related settlement or uh, uh, I guess guilty finding of of liability. All of a sudden, there's a lot of settlements that start taking place. Uh, before the the penalty phase, or in lieu in, in to head off future litigation by companies that weren't involved, so uh, if we start seeing companies being held uh, liable for these kinds of of risks and the damages and and uh, threats, then um, it, it, it'll be really interesting. But so far, mm-hmm. we haven't seen that. You know, but you know, one of the thing that 
I believe will be tougher moving forward. And you tackle this in, in your piece on uh, that specifically looks at this liability of the fossil fuels industry. So it's one thing to say that they didn't know about this in the past. They were hiding things, you know, now the numbers are all out there. So like looking forward as companies, as oil companies in particular, think about where they're going to extract and should they be doing this and, and what exploration are, are they going to spend money on and how much are they investing? You know, it's going to get harder to say that we didn't know, you know, like that might be tougher in the future. And I think that's something that you're, you're helping point out in your piece that uh, you were too humble to mention it specifically, but I am mentioning it for you. Um, and I, I, I love reading your uh, newsletter every Sunday night because I always learn something and I, I didn't see all these connected dots before, but I, um, you know, I hope you can speak to that a little bit more because it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty blatant. Yeah. If you will. And just to be clear, you're reading it Sunday night before everyone else reads it Monday morning because you're my editor. And that's why you get the preview. Just so <laughs> yes. people are saying, why, are, why aren't special. I seeing it on Sunday night too? <laughs> yeah, no. So this is actually about future action, uh, exactly. which is even different than things that are the past or present. Um, and this is uh, about a report that came out and, and a number of things that I tried to tie together in this piece called uh, As the Climate Crisis Grows, Big Oil Finds Itself Over a Barrel. But it was spurred by a report that came out. It was launched at the COP conference in Madrid this week about a, a report by a coalition of 16 activist groups that call themselves the Global Gas and Oil Network that says that um, the oil and gas sector plans to invest $1.4 trillion in new exploration and extraction, and that that alone risks locking in enough carbon emissions to push warming well beyond two degrees Celsius, let alone the degree and a half, 1.5 degrees Celsius goal of the Paris Agreement. And 85% um, of that production is coming from the United States and Canada, and just 25 companies are responsible for nearly half of that, and a lot of the big oil companies that you would know and predict, you can read the report, uh, you can link to it from my story. But this is just a really interesting thing looking at, you know, this is part of the continuation of the keep it in the ground movement, the unburnable carbon movement saying that just because you've licensed or have access or the rights to all of this oil that's in the ground and particularly in the Permian Basin, which is uh, in New Mexico and Texas, that doesn't mean you can or should extract it because doing that is going to blow the carbon budget uh, by by a long shot, and so this is going to be an interesting battle. And and you know already there's I think some interesting um, financial mechanisms here that are, are going to have to be deployed to help companies um, find a reasonable financial solution to not uh, drilling the oil that they've already in some ways paid for. Yeah, I'm I'm laughing here to myself because I think all this stuff that's going on in the Permian Basin, I keep seeing uh, releases and, and news about these companies using renewable energy to do that extraction. So that always kind of I always look at that sort of news and think, ah, oh, okay, they're being they're making their they're making their operations more sustainable, but yet <laughs> what they're using the energy to do is kind of like what? So uh, it's a head shaker. Yeah. And just this week, Chevron announced that it was going to write down 10 to $11 billion uh, to reflect its uh, gloomier outlook 
on the oil and gas properties it has uh, in Appalachia, the Gulf of Mexico, and Canada, uh, which is reflecting the glut of, of oil and gas that exists in the market, and therefore the price drop, and therefore it's uh, less uh, affordable to take it out of the ground. So it may be that that the markets uh, play a role here in um, take, in keeping some of this uh, uh, oil and gas in the ground, but this is this is not just for the U.S. market. This is for a global market, and the U.S. is now be now the largest producer of oil and gas. Uh, the Permian Basin is the second largest oil field after Saudi Arabia, uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see what happens and who uh, what wins. Does the market win? Do environmentalists win? Do uh, shareholders win? Uh, you know, company executives win. This is going to be uh, something we're going to be looking at for a long time to come, probably for the rest of our lives. Hey everyone, Joel here. As we get ready to say goodbye to 2019 and hello to 2020, we'd love to feature your voice on an upcoming episode of Green Biz 350. Here's the deal. We'd like you to answer either or both of two questions. What was the most important lesson you learned professionally in 2019? And what's your biggest professional ambition for 2020? To participate, simply record your thoughts into the voice memo or recording function of your smartphone. Start off by introducing yourself, as in, this is Joel McCower, Executive Editor at GreenBiz, followed by your thoughts. Keep the whole thing to under 90 seconds. Then send the recording to 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll be featuring the voices of our audience on the December 20th and January 10th episodes. Again, the questions are, what was the most important lesson you learned professionally in 2019? And what's your biggest professional ambition for 2020? You can answer both if you'd like, but please record each one separately. Thanks so much. Heather and I look forward to sharing what you have to say with the Green Biz 350 audience. Two years ago, Walmart introduced its groundbreaking Project Gigaton, an initiative to help reduce more than 1 billion metric tons, yes, that's B, emissions from its value chain by 2030. Here to talk about the initiative as well as the progress that the company is making is Zach Fries, Senior Director of Strategic Initiatives with Sustainability at Walmart. Zach, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Heather. It's my pleasure. You now have more than 1,000 suppliers signed on to Project Gigaton. Is that enough to make that 1 billion metric ton removal goal by 2030? Well, we definitely want to encourage more and more suppliers to join. We feel after two years, 1,000 suppliers is a really good start. Um, but really, the point of the initiative is to really uh, increase the total number of suppliers active and involved in climate work and, and reducing emissions. And so... Uh, we hope that number continues to grow and, and seem very confident that it will. And, and our job as retailers is to help position the program and all the initiatives uh, that we think can help suppliers reduce emissions to make it easier to not only join Project Gigaton with a commitment, but also start taking on the work. And we've set up the program and designed the program in a way that we, we're addressing some of the top areas uh, of, of supply chain sustainability. And, and trying to make it easy 
to, to actually go through the entire process of goal setting, what the work needs to be, and then how to report that and report progress publicly. Now, many of those suppliers, I believe, are in the United States, but I know also China has come on online. So can you talk about the regional uh, uh, bias of those suppliers? Where are they from? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we, we do see a, probably a larger number in the U.S., but as you know, climate is a, is a global imperative. And so we have worked to, to roll out the program in additional geographies. And so we, the, the, the first of which was uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, we've since launched in, in China, Canada, and Mexico. And so we, we think the um, geographic variation of the supplier location will, will increase. But a number of the suppliers we work with are global, just like Walmart. And so while uh, a, a portion of their business uh, maybe in the United States, uh, they have a broader reach than, than, than even Walmart. So, so far, these suppliers have reduced their emissions by 93 million metric tons. That's a, a, couple, years, a couple months old figure. What are some of the more innovative strategies they are using? Yeah, and, you know, again, we think that number is a, is a good start, but we know there's more work to do, and that's, that's our job is to identify more pathways for suppliers to engage and reduce emissions. And, uh, you know, we have six different pillars that any supplier can, can work on, and our, our hope is is that, some suppliers can work on all six, um, but even if you can't work on all six, you just get started with one and, and you see how this grows. And so everything from renewable energy to energy efficiency in energy or even things like packaging and packaging reduction, packaging optimization, um, all of those play a role in, in reducing greenhouse gas. And so through these different um, initiatives and, and, and uh, pillars, we think we can encourage more activity from the suppliers. We've seen a lot of companies set commitments on energy. That's that's probably the one that's um, that has the most um, amount of emissions reported, and that's probably because it's been around a little longer. But what we hope to do is start to make some of the other pillars and some of the other areas like packaging, forests, product use, by working on making those pillars a little easier to understand how does this relate to emissions reductions and how suppliers can work on making any sort of improvements to the design of their package or product results in environmental benefits. Quantifying that has really helped suppliers make the case for working on these, uh, th these initiatives uh, broader and, and faster. Yeah, so you just brought up packaging and, and I do want to key in on, in on that because consumer awareness of the impacts associated with retail packaging and also especially single-use plastics has really increased significantly over the past 12 months. So what progress are you making with the packaging pillar of Project Gigaton? What are some of the bolder commitments that you're seeing? Yeah, I would say that's that has been a, a, a huge uh, pillar of interest, uh, not only for, for Gigaton, but also in just, in just the world of, 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 of plastics in, in general and Walmart we've we've made a number of commits ourselves as a retailer but Project Agaton is really our platform to engage with uh, any supplier on, on how to make a difference and centered on climate there's a couple of things that are uh, that are very specific things like reduction so anytime we can reduce the amount of packaging used uh, we can quantify that over the volume sold to translate that to greenhouse gas but also recycle content and incorporate more recycled content in the packaging yeah. which, which we know helps on the circular model um, and, and makes that makes that function collecting increasing commitments on recycled content as well as reporting year over year uh, results through Project Gigaton. We think will will translate to more and more 
tons over time. And so, um, you know, just this last April, we had Unilever, one of our larger global suppliers, make a commitment on our on our stage at our annual milestone, sustainability milestone meeting, and made a commitment to use 50% recycled content uh, by the end of 2020. Um, and they made that on our stage. And so they ratcheted up their own commitment internally to make that happen faster based on the climate benefits as well as all of the the, the new focus on, on plastics. And so we're using those types of leadership examples to hopefully help encourage more companies to get involved. But again, packaging is one of those really good areas that every product we sell has some element of packaging. And so there's something every supplier can do to get involved. Right. So, you know, you mentioned recycled content um, and, and something I'm hearing about more and more is reusable packaging, right? So, of course, Loop, which is an initiative by TerraCycle, is helping pilot some of these concepts, the idea that you could have a reusable container a la the milkman. Just curious, what is Walmart's position on reusable packaging? Do you do, you do anything with, with reusable packaging today? And is that an, an area of, of exploration? Yeah, I would say that you know, we are committed um, ourselves as a retailer to, by 2025, to achieve 100% recyclable, reusable, or compostable packaging for our, for our own private brands. And, and through Project Gigaton, we're encouraging more companies to set those types of goals. Um, and that's really aligned to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and their their ultimate goal of a vision of zero plastic waste. I think reusability is, is, is super interesting and something we're staying very close to. We definitely feel like that's a important part of the puzzle. And so we are in the exploration phase now of what other reusable models can, can Walmart uh, test and, and, and pilot. And, you know, we have some models that exist like this today. Um, and, you know, and, and depending on how you look at reusability, but good examples of like SodaStream and, and how to, uh, encourage the the use of of that by by a consumer, uh, but you know, Loop, some other existing initiatives are really interesting to watch, and so we're we're continuing to evaluate any opportunities on on reuse. So twenty twenty is almost here. <laughs> it's that year we've all been talking about. Um, you know, what is your top priority for the year ahead? Yeah, twenty twenty is a big year, and you know, we're hearing a lot about the continued importance of sustainability and. And, you know, on our, on our mind, top of our mind are really, you know, climate is still obviously of, of paramount importance. And so accelerating through Project Gigaton, uh, our role in helping to uh, encourage more companies to get involved in, in setting and, and working towards commitments, because even setting targets is not um, what we want to see at this stage. It's really more about reporting progress and being very proud about, you know, ourselves as a retailer. We, we're working with a number of suppliers. They're doing some great work. And so we want to help push them uh, to, to do even more if we can. Um, but I think really with exploring more on the role that sustainable packaging needs to play, the, the, the role that uh, that nature can play. And, and I think forests are um, always have always been an important area for us through Project Gigaton. But I think 2020 will be a really big year for promoting nature as, as um really a good solution into helping be a part of the puzzle. And I think translating the importance and accelerating action there will be a top priority for 2020. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to go back to the Project Gigaton you know, spirit for a moment here because one of the, the most useful things I believe that it brings is just this ability to talk to each other, right? So Walmart is helping stage this massive collaboration effort 
So how do you feel and how do you hope to, to help your, your suppliers and value chain learn from each other in the year and decade ahead? You know, how are you going to help them share what, what's working and what's not working in order to accelerate what we need to do? Yeah, that's a great, um, that's a great question. And, and, and I, we, we definitely see that. Um, and, and we benefit from that as well when we see things that, that, that are working. Um, you know, how do we act as a uh, facilitator of, of, of the information? And we think Yucatan has, has really been that and, and should, should really uh, do that even more of when something is working in an industry. And, and one of the things that we've done uh, to help bring some of these things um, to, to reality are um, a, a good example is our recently developed uh, calculators that we've added to our website. And so these are publicly available calculators, but they essentially translate actions to carbon. So things that we've seen in the supplier with, with, with leading suppliers that have, um, you know, uh, shown benefits to the environment, benefits to the business that we can add into Project Gigaton. So suppliers can literally almost in a Mad Lib style complete, here's what I'm doing to my product or package to make a change. What types of benefits can I see if I do this that could translate into into carbon benefits. So by working with some of our leading NGO partners, uh, like an Environmental Defense Fund, World Wildlife Fund, uh, we can actually translate actions to carbon and tie that into what we think the bigger picture is. And, and all that's done through really a lot of just learning from suppliers, some of the best best case scenarios out there of, of, of leading efforts on anything from agriculture practices to uh, energy efficiency and product use and make, bringing that and making that available to any supplier. And we'll put a case study out there as well to bring it to life, but having the, the raw numbers to see what type of actions make a difference, I think are, are really important and helpful in leading suppliers towards creating more impact. Hello, this is Shannon Howd of Walk of Life Coaching. And I'm here today for the Green Biz Purpose and People column, where I'm speaking with Haley Lowry, the Global Sustainability and End Use Marketing Director at Dow. And she talks to us today about how to turn plastic waste into a circular resource. I'd like to feature two excerpts from our recent conversation. The first one is Haley talking about how the company shifted from strictly philanthropic investing to an approach that is more strategic. We started looking at this um, a few years ago when we were looking at our own foundation. We have a Dow Foundation, um, and we carved out a portion of that money to shift it from just philanthropic dollars to be more business strategic. Um, We followed the shared value principles, and we launched the Dow Impact Fund. So that's where money out of the foundation goes directly to projects that help demonstrate a social, environmental, and business impact. And uh, we were able to work on building this culture of, you know, entrepreneurship, getting submissions from our organizations around the world from different people to to come to us, you know, with critical projects that can uh, can be funded. So all of these projects have to involve an NGO. Um, for for the local region and for maximum application. And over the past three years, we've allocated about $5 million to 25 projects that really are delivering social environmental turn, but also have helped even grow some of the business platforms that we've had in terms of business returns to our company. So 
uh, honestly, I think we we still have a lot more progress to go. I, you know, that's a small amount of money right now, but it is a step in the right direction to really trying to catalyze these philanthropic dollars for even greater impact um, to our business and to the environment and society. And in the second excerpt, Haley encourages sustainability professionals to stay the course, even in the face of opposition. We've all determined that there are two buckets, either a company of working on sustainability where no one cares. You're able to do what you need to do, but you have small amount of resources and small budget, um, but you really can shape it the way that you want because you don't have a thousand different eyes and uh, hands in your in the pot, you know, trying to shape the way that it looks. Or on the other side, it you know becomes your CEO's top agenda item, so you can get all the resources and the expenses that you want. Um, but you're dealing with a lot of a lot of um, opinions of you know how things should be done, and you have maybe less flexibility over how you can shape and lead some of those projects um, with really the way that you think. So it's kind of always like a chicken or the egg. Or you're you're on one side or the other side. Um, but not giving up and working with your organizations to evolve through these transitions of companies. More and more companies are starting to realize that, I, I think it was um, through the business roundtable, they said it's not only, the future won't only just be about your financial returns, but also the business or societal, in, the environmental or societal impact that you provide in the marketplace. And so helping your company evolve towards that is is really important. And finding the key business leaders if you're on the on the first side that I mentioned, finding the key business leaders who have um, who are really leading, you know, PL, the direction of your company, and trying to find a project of why it should make them care or why your customers care is a really good place to start um, and, and grow that. And then if you're on the other side, keep pushing the boundaries. I mean, push boundaries for broader, broader, bolder sustainability goals that we allow your company to be in leadership positions. Push, you know, boundaries with partnerships with other companies who are trying to do the same thing that you're doing, but might, might not be like a natural um, working relationship. Um, so those are a few things that I would recommend, but really don't, don't give up because it can seem like a, um, a really long daunting journey, but take each little win uh, that you get, celebrate it, and then just keep moving. As I said earlier in the program, I'm in Chicago this week at the Global Congress put on by ACO, ACCO, and ISSP. And one of the things I did was inducted Janine Benyus into the uh, ISSP Hall of Fame and had a fireside chat with her at the uh, event. And Janine is a longtime friend and the uh, author of Biomimicry and uh, the founder of the Biomimicry Institute nonprofit and the for-profit consultancy Biomimicry 3.8 and the Biomimicry Center at Arizona State University. That's a long intro. (laughs) Great to see you. Good to see you, Joel. So one of the things that is fascinating about you've always got so many great things going on, new projects, new initiatives. Talk about Project Positive. What's going on? It's a it's an amazing thing that's going on. We we basically it was started at Verge, actually. we asked our clients at one of your workshops, we asked actually the people in the room there, what, um, whether they were ready to go positive and what that meant. A lot of people, when they're talking about going positive, they're talking about product. 
Um, maybe they're talking about supply chain and everybody's trying to figure it out. But we really believe that one of the things that companies touch that they don't think as much about is, is land and facilities. So what we're doing with Project Positive is we're helping companies figure out how to create positive benefits from their buildings and their facilities and the lands that they touch. And what I mean by that, when I say positive benefits, you remember we are biomimicry. So the idea is how does a company, the facilities, uh, mimic the local ecosystem next door? How does it, how does a company's facility be as high performing as the ecosystem next door? This is measurable because an ecosystem, a forest, a lot of bad stuff goes into a forest, a lot of polluted air, a lot of polluted water. By the time it leaves, it's purified, right? There, it's, it's nurturing biodiversity, it's building soil, it's cleaning air, it's storing water, storing carbon. So what we do is we look at local ecosystems, we measure how much air is being purified, how much water is being purified, how much carbon is being stored. And then we go to the company and say, if you want to match that or even exceed that, let's, let's figure out a program. Let's look at what you, let's baseline what, your, what ecosystem services you're producing right now. We know what the, what the local ecology does. And then there's a performance gap. And we try to close that performance gap with the company. Um, we've done it with Interface. We call it factory as a forest in that, in that instance. And now we have, com- we have a, several companies. Um, our first meeting, we actually came, well, we had our first meeting at Verge. Um, and then after that, we had a meeting in Montana. We ran a meeting in Montana. And we had Ford, Interface, Interface's supply chain, Aquafil, Microsoft, Google, Kohler, uh, and a big developer uh, in San Francisco, HOK, Jacobs, um, our software partner, ESG. And together, that group uh, decided to become a learning cohort and call themselves Project Positive. And we're starting to do pilots. So we've got four buildings with Ford right now that we're starting to baseline the building, baseline the local ecologies, um, figure out that delta, and put them on a program towards producing ecosystem services. We're also uh, doing a pilot with Kohler, and of course we're doing uh, work with uh, Interface and Aquafil. So not everybody knows what positive really means in this context. Just what's the goal? What are you hoping to see here? Um, And yeah, I want to talk about that. And then, then how do companies... It sounds overwhelming for, I think, a lot of companies that are still grappling with just basic waste reduction, pollution prevention, and energy efficiency. But first of all, what does positive mean? Yeah. Well, positive means um, generous. It, to me, it, ecosystems are generous. They basically, when you go downwind of an ecosystem or downstream of an ecosystem, you're going to find clean water, clean air, biodiverse habitats, right? Because these systems are so healthy that they actually have a surplus. They're making things better than when they came in, basically. Um, And so 
imagine our uh, a company's facilities and landscaping doing the same thing. So it's more than net zero. So for instance, um, how much water is your landscape storing right now and your building storing right now? Well, what if you got on a, a program to increase water storage to the level of the eco, uh, ecosystem next door? You might do things like take your parking lot and make it a permeable pavement parking lot. You might put a green roof on. You might link those green roofs, like the Coast Guard building that we worked on. We actually had several green roofs in sequence that would purify water on the way down, store it and purify it before it went back into the stream. You might take the landscaping that you currently have, which is you know, heavily pesticide and you know, clipped within an inch of its life, and you might actually plant, do plantings that help store water and, and help bioirrigate. Um, and that's just one ecosystem service. I mean, I think we've become very myopic around carbon, right? We're wanting to sequester carbon. Um, so yes, these landscapes and buildings can sequester carbon. You can use mass timbers to sequester carbon in your structural part of your building. You can use carbon sequestering concrete in your building. Like there's different ways your building can sequester carbon and your landscaping. But we're looking at not just carbon. We're looking at how many benefits can you collect. So this sounds amazing. Um, how do you get involved? Just go to our website, biomimicry.net, and in the uh, section of, of what we do, uh, there's an area there to, to look at. There's a Project Positive page, and you can join. Um, and we're having our next meeting in Atlanta in early spring uh, at Serenby. And basically, this is a learning cohort. Come if you're interested in figuring out how the lands that you touch, meaning your corporate, your corporate lands, but also the lands in your supply chain. Why not count up 20 different ecosystem services that your management recommendations are making possible? If you're asking for organic in your ingredients, it means that you're doing something that wouldn't ordinarily be done, perhaps on that landscape. You're asking for pesticides to be reduced. Therefore, you're creating richer and more fertile soils. And that means you're storing more water because fertile soils store more water. So the idea is why not count up any of the handprint, you know, the benefits on any of the lands you touch, whether they're in your real estate portfolio, they're in your supply chain, or even some of our clients are starting to say, why don't we get our employees involved in their own backyards and their kids' schools producing ecosystem services from those places? Um, suddenly, if you start adding that up programmatically, as a company, as an organization, you're making possible the healing of quite a few acres of land. Um, and, and that is, for me, for me, positive is about, it's that next step beyond zero. It's about figuring out how to be actually a welcome species in your watershed. I mean, I honestly think that the new civic gesture is not a museum. It's a healthy watershed.
Wouldn't it be nice if we were a welcome species? Janine Benyus is the founder of Biomimicry 3.8, the Biomimicry Institute, and a partner in Biomimicry Center at Arizona State University. Thanks, Janine. You're welcome, Joel. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. That's five weekly newsletters and all. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to find out more about them. And we always love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>